Psalm 11. If you'd like to turn to Psalm 11 in your Bibles. We are done with Hebrews. That was last week we finished it. Um, where we're headed, I think I've said this a couple times, but I'll uh, just to refresh your memory. Um, I won't be here next week. Our family is going to be uh, gone, so I won't be here next week. Kyle French is going to be speaking. A lot of you don't know Kyle. Uh, Kyle has a very interesting background. He's a, he's a, he had a lot of different exposures theologically, and I enjoy talking with him. But um, Kyle was a pastor at Cedar Hills Community Church down uh, by the Stony Point area. Um, it's a Reformed Church of America church. I believe he was the family and children's pastor there, but I'm not positive about that. But he uh, resigned from his position and moved over to Trinity Presbyterian with Isaac Farrell, who you know is a good friend of mine. And he is uh, serving an internship under Isaac with the long-term goal of doing a uh, Presbyterian Church of America church plant in Marion in the next few years. And um, I've never heard him preach, but uh, I know him as a person and know his heart. And I'm excited about you guys hearing him and, uh, and, and what he has to share with you. He's going to be preaching from Psalm 73, but he'll be speaking next week. And then uh, the following Sunday, I'll be back, and we are going to start a study in Ecclesiastes and Psalms. Um, I was talking with... Isaac Farrell a few weeks ago and he asked me because he's been listening to the Hebrew series and he asked me what's after Hebrews and I said um, Ecclesiastes and Psalms and he said well that's an interesting combination and I said yeah that's kind of what I'm thinking and he told me that when he uh, had when when Trinity Presbyterian started his first sermon series was from Ecclesiastes which I had never heard of anybody started planting a church with Ecclesiastes. But he said it was, it was very interesting because he also planted the church in the middle of the pandemic. So he had all the back uh, issue stuff of the pandemic feeding into uh, the, the, what they were learning from Ecclesiastes. So I've been thinking about going back and listening to his series. But we'll be, what we'll be doing with the two is um, uh, one week we'll be in Ecclesiastes, and the next week we'll be in Psalms, and then the next week we'll be in Ecclesiastes. And so that, uh, there's 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, and I'm, I'm planning right now to have one sermon per, per chapter or thereabout, and then a totally non-corresponding psalm. I, I pick certain psalms for certain reasons and they don't necessarily correspond to Ecclesiastes, but I think together um, there'll be an encouragement to all of us. So that'll be beginning in June, the second week of June. So that's what is coming up. But for today, honestly, I was supposed to be finishing Hebrews today, and I was not paying attention to what I had scheduled for sermons. And um, one week I didn't check my own schedule that I put together months in advance, and uh, uh, did two sermons one Sunday instead of splitting a passage apart. And so I got off, I got ahead, and I have uh, a Sunday to fill today. And I've been reading in the Psalms, and Psalm 11 just 
really resonated with me as part of our, uh, in its connection to our world today. And so I wanted to uh, share some thoughts with you from Psalm 11 and what God has been teaching me, and hopefully it will be encouraging to you. So um, we'll begin by reading the whole chapter. It's seven verses, it's not a long one. And uh, I will read actually beginning with verse one, which is not what you think it is. In the Hebrew uh, Bible, verse one is a different verse. So we'll start with verse one. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul then, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This psalm, I think, is fairly familiar to you. if only for the question asked in verse three, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How many of you are familiar with that verse? Um, a, lot of, a lot of sermons get preached out of that verse and, and rightly so. Um, sometimes the conclusions they come to as to what, how we should respond are different from what David says, but uh, uh, it's, it is a well-used verse especially at Christian pep rallies, um, so to speak, where, you know, you get everybody fired up about changing the world. We know that David wrote this psalm because it says in technically what is verse 1 to the choir master of David. When you, when you go through the psalms, those, those little headings, so there's, like in the ESV Bible, they have added a little heading, the Lord is in his holy temple. But the, the part underneath of it, to the choir master of David, or in Psalm 12, to the choir master according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Um, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, considered that part of the scripture. The, the, uh, the heading that the author wrote was considered part of the scripture to them. So they always read it, and um, ever since I learned that, I have always read that out loud along with the psalm. But we know it's written by David, but we don't know the circumstances that led to its writing. Uh, He doesn't give us any history with it. Some people believe that David may have written this while he was on the run from Saul. There's aspects of it to me though that it's like there's this all of a sudden um, David and his people, his advisors are having this conversation and that really wouldn't have worked very well in the original situation with Saul. Um, That was a continual, possibly 17 year event. And uh, it just doesn't seem to fit with that in my mind. Other people believe it 
timing relates to when his son Absalom led a coup against him, which that actually, to me, seems more of a possibility, but we don't know for sure. It could have been some other period of time in there. Uh, but we do know David wrote it. Whatever the situation that David was facing, whatever was going on uh, that, that was happening, the threats that he records for us were real and dangerous enough that those who were close to him feared for his life. And they advised him to flee to a place of safety. Kind of like we have president, we have secret service guys that go around with him all the time. Uh, it's possible that David had a very close group uh, that were there to protect him. And they may have heard the rumors that were happening and uh, warned David and said, you need to get out of here. Uh, the threats are real. You need to get to a safe place. You know, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, is it possible, you know, we have these times in our lives where, where events come up and they seem um, more serious than they really are. They're, they seem really big and threatening and horrible in the moment. And, and we begin to panic and that adrenaline starts to go through us and we start to uh, just get really wound up and then uh, after it's over, we kind of look back at it and go, oh, I guess I kind of overreacted to that one. That was a little bit smaller than what I made it out to be. Um, maybe you don't do that. Um, I had a colleague when we taught at the college that he was always right here. He didn't take any medication. He was always right here. He never got up. He never got down. He just was steady Eddie right here. When he taught, I hated it. I had a couple classes with him at one point in time, and I hated it because he would stand there and he would just read his notes like this and he would talk like this and he would never look up. He would just keep talking for the entire time. Uh, but what I appreciated about him was he was always a calming influence. He just, that was Bill Arndt, Terry, if you remember Bill. He just was there. Um, there are those people, and then there are people like me that have a tendency sometimes to overreact. But in this case, what David was dealing with was not a minor thing. There were not exaggerations being thrown out. This was real. Those who were after him were told were, all I could think of was ninja warriors, that kind of, because it says that uh, they, they fitted their arrow to the string to shoot at the, in the dark at the upright in heart. Uh, the New Living Translation really does a nice job with this, with this psalm. And, uh, and they use the language that they are um, ready to shoot their arrows from the shadows. They're, they're, they're out there, but you can't see them. You don't know where they are. You don't know for sure where the arrows are going to be coming from. So there's really no safe space in that location. And, and it also could imply that there were members of David's entourage who were close to him who had turned against him, kind of like uh, spies in the, uh, uh, in the presence of the king who were a threat to him. Whatever it was, his life was on the line. Responding to these threats, 
and almost in seeming despair, a question flows out from the hearts of his closest team, his friends. And, and they've said, you need, to, you need to get out of here. You need to go to a safe space. There are people who want your life. We don't know. We can't see where they are. We don't know where it's coming from. But the threats are real. And David, everything has fallen apart around us. If the foundations have collapsed, what can the righteous do? It implies that the non-righteous have reached a level of power that they have completely disrupted the kingdom. And I want you to think about it for a moment from their perspective. As they're trying to protect their king, as they're trying to protect probably their friend, a man that they think highly of and that they respect. And as they are trying to salvage the kingdom, they're talking to the king who is responsible for law and order. When it says if the foundations are destroyed, it really means if, if all of the basis of law and order is falling apart, then what can the righteous do when everything has been taken down by evil people? And this king is responsible for this law and order. Ultimately, it's in his power to declare the law. This is not a democracy, nor is it a federal republic. I'll just throw that out for the people who understand history, that we are not a democracy. We are a federal republic and have been since the beginning, but that's a separate issue. But David didn't rule over a democracy or a federal republic. David was king. He was ultimate power in the land. He made the rules. It was his responsibility to enforce the rules. It was his responsibility to maintain order. But from what we're reading here, it would seem that David has lost control of the kingdom. It doesn't matter what decrees he's made. And he seems to be in a place where he's unable to enforce the law. And everything is falling apart. And based on that, based on the threats and based on the lawlessness that seems to have come to the kingdom, his, his inner circle believes he should flee like a frightened bird to a safe place. Uh, th that, that imagery is interesting. And, and I don't know if they, he says to them, how can you say to my soul? So they must have been using these words, flee like a bird to your mountain. But I, I, as I read that, Psalms, the, the, the Psalms are full of, of pictures, imagery. And so it's important as you read these Psalms to picture what's happening. I'm a bird watcher. I have been for a long time. I've spent hours out in the forests of northern Wisconsin tracking down birds that I'm hearing call. I have bird feeders. I love to watch the birds feed and I just enjoy them, but there are sparrows. And sparrows are not my favorite. They eat my expensive bird seed and they scatter it everywhere and they're annoying. They're in the same level as squirrels to me. I don't like squirrels either. They are the bane of my life because bird seed is too expensive. But 
ever since the derecho, at least on our neck of the woods, all I'm seeing at the bird feeders are house finches and sparrows. Every once in a while there'll be a goldfinch, but it's just a lot of sparrows. Some people love, Tom, you love sparrows, right? Yeah, some people love sparrows. I'm not a fan. Um, but I think sparrows are interesting to watch because you'll have a bunch of them come in and there'll be something that disrupts them or they feel threatened and, and, and one goes and they all go. And they're just flying all over the place to get to a place of safety. And, and so when I read this here and David says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? That's what I envision, are sparrows that are freaked out, that are all just going everywhere to get to a safe space. And then slowly they'll start coming back and then they'll all freak out again and they'll go again. That, that's the imagery I have here that David is saying to them, how can you say that to me? How, why would you expect me to think and live that way? In fact, I think David's response to their advice is fascinating. Do, do you, we spend so much time on <clears throat> the foundations be destroyed, and they're being destroyed, and so this is what we've got to do because the foundations are being destroyed. What's David's response? How does he start this psalm? In the Lord. I take refuge. That's how he starts it. In the Lord, I take refuge. And so then he says, so how can you even say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? I'm already in my safe space. Why would I, why would I flee? I've taken refuge in God. He almost seems stunned at their suggestions. Why are you saying these things to me? How can you? And you know, to be honest, um, I, I used to teach a class called Life of David. Went through all of his life, looked at some of his psalms and things, tied specific psalms into specific times of his life. To be honest, David has some, what I would call less than stellar moments when it comes to his belief in God and his faith in God. In fact, in Psalm 13, which is one of the psalms we'll look at as, as we begin that study, the Psalm 13, you might not even have to turn to it, you might be able to see it right now. He writes this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You know, you got Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How in the world can you tell me to run to a safe space? And then Psalm 13. God, you've left me all by myself out here and I'm dying. That, that's the contrast with David. I relate well to David because that's the way I am. I, I fluctuate between those two poles, so to speak. So he has these not so great days. But in this moment, David is steadfast in his trust in God. 
And I'd ask you the question, or we could ask the question, is it because David is such a brave king and can laugh in the face of fear? And the answer is no, because we can just read Psalm 13. So it's not because he's Mr. Brave. I thought maybe it's because he's actually the original Justice League member and has slingshot superpowers. You know, you got all the Avengers, you got all these Marvel comic superheroes, and they have their superpower, and David's was the slingshot, you know. I was trying to think of a good name for David with the, with the Marvel comics. Is that, is it, is it, he knows he's got that slingshot, and anybody who shoots an arrow, he can just dodge it like the Matrix, you know, and then while he's bending backwards, whip around a stone and nail the guy who just shot the arrow at him. No. It'd be kind of a cool movie, but no. I think we just need to let David explain himself. And he begins in verse 4, and he makes it very simple. In verse 1, he says, In the Lord I trust, so shut up, is kind of what he's saying. And then in verse 4, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. How can you say this to me? I trust in God, and I want you to understand something. Nothing has changed with God. Yeah, stuff, bad stuff out there is happening, but absolutely nothing has changed with God. The Lord is in his holy temple. And I thought of this, and what, what occurred to me was that there was a physical temple, you know? I mean, there was a tabernacle, not the temple, but there was a physical tabernacle at this time. And the Shekinah glory of God was in that tabernacle just like it had been with Moses and the people of Israel back in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That pillar of cloud that rested over the one end and went down into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, was still there. And David could look out at the, everyone who, could, who lived in Jerusalem, who visited Jerusalem, could see the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud of God by day and the pillar of fire at night resting, dwelling in the Holy of Holies and coming up from over it. And I, and I can imagine David, as they're saying these things to him, David, David is maybe, could maybe look out the window of his castle, his, his palace, his dwelling, and look over there. Hey, guys. God's still in his dwelling place. He's still there. And guys, God's still on his throne. Nothing's changed. Today we would say it this way. God still reigns. He's still on his throne. He's still in control. Have you ever said those kind of things? Something happens in life, the life unravels, and, and somebody says to you that useless cliche, well, God's still in control. It's not a useless cliche. It's what David is saying here. The Lord's in his temple. God still sits on his throne. He still reigns. He's still in control. What David is not saying is, well, we all know everything happens for a reason. 
That's a horrible statement. It means absolutely nothing. It, it, it affirms some kind of power or force behind everything, but it doesn't say anything about God or his character. All it, all it does is push back against the randomness of this world. David is specific. God is in his holy temple. God's throne is in heaven. He recognizes that nothing has changed with God, so he will trust in him. And he's recognizing that God is still on plan A for my life and this world. And he recognizes something even more. He recognizes that God is aware. I, I find this fascinating with David um, because of David's Bible knowledge. David had five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all he had. But with only the first five books of the Bible to inform him, David knows that God is not some distant, uninvolved deity who doesn't want to be bothered with the messy details of David's life. In fact, if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, one of the things you have to walk away with is the reality of God's personal involvement in all the activities of people, humans. You have to, if you're, if you're aware of what's being said there at all, you have to understand that, that <clears throat> he sees what's happening, he knows what's happening, and he's interacting with human beings and intervening in human history. And David is pulling from those five books, all those stories about God and, and people, and says, God is not unaware. God is aware, and in fact, he's keeping track of everything. I mentioned earlier the New Living Translation. It says, it interprets or translates these verses as this. God watches everyone closely, examining every person on earth. That's the meaning of his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. He watches everyone closely, everyone, every human being. And he's keeping track of everything. The billions of people who live on this earth, there is never a moment that God is not aware of what every single person is doing and he's keeping track of every single thing that they do. That's David's statement. And if you ever think that God is small or unable, just start wrapping your brain around billions of people, and God knows every single one, who they are, what they are planning, what they are thinking, and what they are doing. Then the Lord, we're told, examines both the righteous and the wicked, and he tells us, David tells us, what God thinks of what the wicked are doing. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God, at his very core, 
God at his very being hates the wicked. And he hates the one who loves violence. Have you ever have you ever had something happen in your life where someone else has done something and it creates such an anger and such a fire in you that you can't stand the thought of that person? Maybe you're like Bill, who's just here. <laughs> and that never happens with you. I'm not one of those people. I have very, very intense emotion, if you haven't figured that out. But God is far beyond us. And when David says that God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence, it goes, it goes well beyond anything that we've ever felt. But what's interesting is, is I've been in situations, and maybe you have too, where someone has done something that is so wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. There's not a thing you can do about it. You can't change it, you can't fix it, you can't make it better. The best that you could ever hope to do is get even, but you sit back and you go, mm, well, that's not exactly how God wants us to live with a life of pursuing doing bad things to someone else because they did bad things to me. But David says here that God doesn't just get mad and, and he doesn't just get even. David communicates in verse six that God brings judgment and justice to this world. God gets involved in this world because he is righteous. God gets involved in this world because it belongs to him. It's his. He made it. He created it. And because he created it and it's because it's his possession, he cares deeply about it. And he gets involved in it. The ESV translation here seems to phrase the beginning of verse 5 as a request. Let him. But it really would be better worded as a statement. If you read the language, it's, it's really a statement. And it would be read this way. He rains blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. As I read that, and as I've read it over the years, I wonder sometimes if David was thinking of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was, this, there was this community that had plummeted to such depths of evil that the only solution was for God to just destroy them. And he did it with raining down blazing coals and burning sulfur. He did a similar judgment with Noah where he flooded the entire earth and killed off everything and everyone except eight people and the animals in the ark. When Hebrews says that we should serve God with acceptable worship because our God is a consuming fire, it means that we are to reverence him because he is involved in this earth, in this creation, 
and he brings judgment, and he brings justice. David is clear that God is involved in bringing judgment and bringing justice in the mess of this world. And it's not just someday. Romans tells us that God currently is expressing wrath on the children of men, on human beings. That judgment and that justice is happening already. There's one more thought moving forward in the passage. There's one more thought that drives David's response in this psalm. It's not just that God is in control. It's not just that God is keeping score. It's not just that no one gets away with sin or that evil will be and actually is being punished. The the other thing David wants us to understand is that God is righteous. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. And that's why God hates the wicked, because he is righteous. You see, the wicked pursue and promote violence in his creation. They love shedding blood. They love destroying the creation. They get pleasure out of ruining what God has made. He intended it to be a place of peace, of flourishing, of of fellowship with him and with each other. But the wicked want to see violence. They want to see it ruined. There's also encouraging words here, and that is that as much as he hates the wicked, because he loves righteousness, righteousness, he loves the righteous. I would argue with the intensity that he hates the wicked because of their violence, he loves the righteous. And he tells us at the end of the psalm, the upright or the righteous shall behold his face. He loves the righteous, he loves their righteous deeds, and they shall behold his face. And those are just wonderful words that actually should, pro- should produce terror in our hearts. God is righteous. He hates the wicked. He loves righteousness. He loves righteous deeds and he loves the righteous. And the natural response of a human being is to read verse 7 and go, oh, I'm okay. He loves the righteous. I do good things. But the reality of this is it's, it, it should terrify us in our natural state. It really should make, honestly, I don't want to over-dramatize this, but I would say it should make our knees go weak and our hands tremble. We need to hear the words of Psalm 14, also written by David, and he says this, the Lord looks down from heaven, same idea. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. If there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And you know what God concludes? 
as he looks down, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Those are devastating words. None, not even one. If you read Romans 3, Paul quotes Psalm 14 in his argument as to why all human beings stand guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. In Psalm 15, David asks a seemingly simple question. O Lord, who shall live or abide in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the answer, which is very simple, honestly, is awful in its condemnation. David responds to that question by saying, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And those words of Psalm 15 should cut us to the heart Because as human beings, they condemn us. We get left behind with the first statement. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who shall dwell in God's presence, in God's place of dwelling? Who, sh who can live with God? Well, not me because I messed up that whole thing of walking blameless, doing what's right and speaking truth in his heart when I was a very young age. I got eliminated. I didn't have to get to the rest of the list. I got eliminated with the very first one. But I want to tell you this morning that while we cannot enter or enjoy God's presence according to this list, there is one who can, there is one who could. And that one is Jesus. Jesus meets every qualification on that list. And that man, Jesus, actually not only meets the qualifications, but defines and displays the list in all of its fullness. And because God, who is righteous, and loves righteousness, loved Jesus, and loves Jesus. I also want to tell you that this God, who is righteous and loves righteousness, and therefore hates the wicked and hates the violence of the wicked, is also great in mercy towards human beings. It's a conundrum I will never understand. I don't think I will even understand it someday when I'm with him. But I definitely won't understand it fully now because my heart is not anywhere near his heart in the sense of understanding these things and who he is. 
This God who hates the wicked and hates wickedness sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for sin so that whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, they shall be saved. We take that so lightly. We are so glib about salvation. It is, it is wonderful good news. But it is rooted in things that are so unnatural to us. God loving people that it says he hates. I don't know how to explain that. It just is. And being merciful to them. And sending his son to die for them and to pay their penalty that through faith in Jesus to shed blood we find forgiveness of sin and God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us so that when he looks on us he doesn't see wicked people who pursue violence he sees righteous people that he loves and through the power of the Holy Spirit we can actually do works of righteousness that he loves On the one hand, it's such simple truth, but on the other hand, it's just unbelievable. You can't put your brain around what it says about God here and, and what he has done for us. Somehow David knew this, and David believed this, so that he stated in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Those are such beautiful, pure, calming words to my soul. And so David says, I take refuge in the Lord. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to, a mountain, to the mountains. You know, so I, I mentioned at the beginning that Psalm 11, as I was reading, really seemed to resonate with where we are in this world. And I cannot help but think we live in a time when it seems that the foundations are being destroyed. I was reading a commentary, and he was talking about a person, another commentator on this passage, who in 1939 said that the, that the foundations were being destroyed and we really, I mean, he was just going on and on about how the world was falling apart. And the commentator who was referring to the first commentator was writing 50 years later in 1989 and said that if it was that bad then, it's a thousand times worse than it is than it was then. And now it's 2022 and I'm looking all the way back to 1939 and it seems like the foundations have been being destroyed for a very long time. And not to end the sermon on a Debbie Downer, but I just want to give you a moment to consider how our culture is unraveling. And I'm reaching the age, and I've said this before, that I can now make comments about the culture. 
I have enough perspective to look back and make comments about the culture. I used to think I had a right to do that at 35. But we are seeing continually revolts against authority, which is not new, but it's encouraged at the highest levels of authority. We see intentional undermining of important institutions in our society. We're seeing immorality of all kinds. Sex outside of marriage is not only tolerated, but now expected even in Christian circles. Christian young people today believe that they should live with someone before they marry them to make sure that they're going to be a good partner and have sex with them before they're married to make sure that they satisfy them to the degree they want to be satisfied. The LGBTQ plus agenda celebrated all over in the open and now being imposed upon young children and yes, that should infuriate you. We don't know where to turn for information anymore because it seems like all of our information sources are compromised by blatant bias. We see scandals in religious circles. And this week, Southern Baptist Convention has its biggest scandal ever. It's horrible. I read the entire report. I posted it on Facebook, uh, Northbrook's Facebook page. I would encourage you to read it to understand how high the corruption went in the SVC. We've known that there were issues and people have been speaking out. I've been be involved behind the scenes in ways that um, you don't know and I don't want you to know, but Eric and I did some things to, push, to help push somebody out of power a few years ago. It's horrible, it's ugly, it's rotten what has been done to young women and children, and the cover-up only made it worse at the highest levels. Crime is exploding all around us. After the shootings this week, People are now saying, we need more than prayers and thoughts. We need more than mere words. When did we come to the place where prayer is mere words? But then I sit back and think, how many Christians see prayer as mere words instead of access and pleading to the most powerful being in the universe? We have increasing numbers of people who do not identify with any type of religious practice. The Cedar Valley area is around 45% of the people do not identify with any form of organized religion at all. That rivals places like Europe and Australia, which we have seen as just dead, dead places. And we can look outside the church and we can point fingers and we can say there and the foundations are being destroyed and they're doing it. But within the church, Christians have come to a place where they do not believe the Bible. 
And I want to give you some stats. I've given some of these to you in the past, but I want you to hear them again. Among those surveyed who identified as evangelicals, evangelicals, only 30% agree, uh, no, agree that Jesus was merely a great teacher. That means three out of every 10 people sitting here this morning, if statistics apply here, don't believe Jesus was God. How did we ever come to that place in, in what we consider to be conservative doctrine, I mean, churches that believe conservative doctrine and teaching? Among those who claim to be born-again Christians, it's a bright, broad swath, but they claim to be born-again Christians, 70% born-again Christians, 70% believes you can get to heaven without belief in Jesus. <laughs> Aaron's mom back there just went, uh, yeah. That's like a no-brainer. Among those who are parts of non-liberal churches, they're members of non-liberal churches, churches that explicitly teach the gospel of salvation by Christ, 41% believe that salvation comes by good deeds. I, we're not talking those, those churches that you know don't believe the Bible. We're talking about churches just like ours. 41% believe that salvation comes by doing good deeds. Pew Research poll found that among self-described Christians who identify as non-mainline, which are the liberal, don't believe the Bible churches, and that are not Roman Catholic, a full 20% believe in a higher power but don't believe in the God described in the Bible. Churches just like ours. 20% don't believe in the God of the Bible, but they believe in a force, a higher power. As a pastor, I look at that and I say the foundations are crumbling not just in our culture but in our churches. It's scary. You know, and, I'm, and, I, and I literally was running through my mind where you guys sit. Some of you are out of your normal places today. But I, where you sit, and I'm running through the chairs and thinking and thinking, do they believe that? Do they believe that? I can't believe they believe that. But it's churches just like ours. And, and as a pastor, as a person whose entire life and vocation is vested in the advance of the gospel and seeing people flourish in Christ, honestly, I look around and things seem pretty bleak. But I want to bring you back to what David said. God is in his holy temple. God is on his throne. And I want to remind you also that if you have trusted Jesus, that that temple that God is in is you. You. When we read God is in his holy temple, 
That's not some tabernacle or building somewhere that's de decrepit and falling apart. That is your body. And when things look bleak, what David is saying to us today is God's there. He's present with you. He's in you. I want to remind you that he is not disinterested in what is happening. He is keeping score. And so then it's important for us to live in a way that that by contrast, an example exposes the evil works of the wicked. And in doing so, hopefully, they might see their depravity and flee to Jesus, shining like stars in the darkness. And I want to encourage you, as David says, the Lord is righteous, he loves the righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. I would encourage you this morning to see his face in his word. And with all of those together, in the midst of a bleak, seemingly bleak time, it will bring us to a place where we can say, I trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. Is that where you are? As you see the stuff that's happening around us today, are you fearful? Are you like David's advisors? Or is your heart where David's heart is, especially because we know Christ and we have a sure foundation? I trust in the Lord. My foundation is not being destroyed. And as David says, I shall not be moved. I shall not be shaken. I will trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts. Help us again to believe that there is nothing too hard for you. Help us to trust in your will. Help us to believe that you are still in control. And Father, may that not just be a flippant statement, but may it be our resting place. May we believe that you are bringing justice. God, my heart is crushed. By what has happened in the community to which I belong called the Southern Baptist Church Convention. May you bring justice. And Father, if there are leaders who claim to be your children but are not, God, I pray that you will bring judgment, but I, I will submit to your mercy and ask that you would save their souls. Help them to see the blindness and the darkness that's been perpetrated. Help them to see the violence that's been supported. God, if they don't know you, save their souls. If they do, may this bring them to a place of repentance and change. God, I pray for those people who have not only been 
raped, but have been further traumatized by the response of those who should protect them. God, I pray that you'd encourage their hearts, that they would have a sense of your presence, that they would know your love, that you would help them to flourish. Help us to trust in you. Help us to be people of peace. Help us to be people who rest in you. In your son's name, amen.